Hopefully that has given you enough time to find revelation. Um, Let me give us a thought to start with this morning. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. These are the words of the 19th century British artist William Blake, appropriately diagnosing the condition of mankind. The fact that we were created to worship, we were created to behold, to to live in awe of something. And his recognition that if we don't direct that to God, we will direct that at all sorts of other things. And we will become like the thing we choose to behold. He said we will become what we behold. Over the last couple of months, we've looked at the seven churches in Revelation These seven churches had all sorts of different issues. No two were alike. But I would argue that most fundamentally, all seven of the churches, like all of us, have a vision problem. We have a problem with what we focus our eyes and attention on. And so this morning, as we walk back through some of Revelation and look at some new parts of the book, I would encourage us to be asking a couple of questions. Which of the seven churches do I resemble? Which of the seven churches do I resemble? Which of the seven churches do we as a church resemble? And then asking the question, why? Why do I resemble that church? What am I beholding that makes me resemble that church? Let's pray before we dive into this last message. Father, we just come before you, praising you. The words of that last song, we behold you. Lord, what a gift it is to be in your presence as your people. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you've revealed yourself to us in your word that you've spoken, and that we've had the chance to hear you and know who you are. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, for the fact that we can be in relationship with you because of his blood on our behalf. Lord, as we seek to understand your word this morning, I ask that your Spirit would enable us to hear the message, Lord, that you would speak through your word through me this morning to encourage your people to glorify Yourself, to exalt the name of Your Son. So, Father, just guide our time together. We commit it to You, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that in nearly every message that I have personally preached, I have gone over time. Um, So I'm going to be shifting approaches a bit this morning. Uh, Rather than trying to take a shorter passage in the hope that that means I will preach within the time I have, I'm going to take five chapters and try to be under 40 minutes. Bear, bear with me here, okay? We're going to do our best, I promise. We're going to be looking at Revelation 1 through 5. Don't worry, we're not going to exhaust that section, but we want to be looking at that as we wrap up this Dear Church sermon series together. And as providence would have it, and I didn't anticipate this going into the sermon series, I'm actually going to be using the same outline this week for the first five chapters of Revelation that I was using every week as we looked at each of the letters to the church. In chapter one, we're going to see the address of the letter. We're going to see who the letter is to, because I think John frames the whole book in much the same way that each of the individual letters is framed. In chapters two and three, we're going to see the aim of the letter. What is the point? What is being said to these churches and to us? 
And then lastly, in chapters 4 and 5, we're going to look at an assurance that Christ gives to his churches. The address, chapter 1, the aim, chapter 2 and 3, and the assurance, chapters 4 and 5. And we're going to try to wrap up these last eight weeks and put a bow on our study in Revelation here a bit. Let's dive in. we got a lot to get through. The letter's address. Note that the letter is written to the seven churches in Asia. We see that in verse 4. Now, we're going to do a little bit of review here, so stick with me. You know some of what I'm going to say here, okay? Verse 4a, we see John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Not shocking. This study is about the seven churches. We skip down to or verse 9 through 11 of chapter 1, and we read, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in the book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea, which we talked about last week. We know these are the seven churches that this book is addressed to, but we also know, because of like all Scripture, the book of Revelation is not just for the original audience, it's also for us. Look back at verse 3, we read this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so the book of Revelation starts off by saying this letter is addressed to the seven churches, but this letter is also addressed to the churches throughout time. There's a blessing available to everyone who reads aloud this book. But I would also say there's a warning meant for everyone who reads aloud this book. And that's what we've studied over the last few weeks. We've looked at these seven churches. We've said, what did Christ say to these seven churches? Again, this is by way of review. Hang on. Let me tell you something else you already know. In verse 4 and 5, we read who the letter is from. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. We see all three members of the Trinity included as we get this letter written from God to his seven churches. And much like each of the individual letters that we've seen, Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, this book begins with a description of Christ as well. Did you pick up on the three ways that Christ describes himself at the beginning of the book of Revelation? We've talked about this a while back, but it's been a little while. We see three descriptions of Christ in the first chapter of Revelation, and these are three critical things for us to remember as we look at the rest of this book. Look at verse 5 through 8. We see the first description. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. But keep reading. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. But keep reading. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John starts off his letter by writing who Christ is. He writes this description of Christ at the beginning before talking about the seven churches that he's addressing. What we see here in this description of Jesus shouldn't be unfamiliar to us because it forms the basis of what we've seen in each of the seven churches. We see Christ as the eternal sovereign and final conqueror of the world. 
Did you see that in this description? Jesus creates a people. He is a faithful witness. He has dominion forever, but He will come in the clouds and the earth will wail on account of Him because He is the Alpha and the Omega. We see this vision that John writes of Christ as the eternal sovereign and the final conqueror of the world. We've talked about that in many of the churches, but we have to remember that as we go through the rest of the book. We also see another description. We see what John saw in verses 12 through 16. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. What a vision of Christ at the beginning of this letter. John, in this vision, turns and sees Christ, and the only way he can describe it is with a whole bunch of descriptions. But this should be a familiar theme as well, because this is the image of Christ as the righteous judge and holy warrior. We've talked about this with a number of the churches. Christ is the righteous, all-knowing, all-discerning judge, and he also comes as a holy warrior, bringing judgment first on his people and then on the world. But there's one final description of Christ that we have to note here before we move into the seven churches, and that's found in verses 17 and 18. In addition to Christ as the eternal sovereign and final conqueror, In addition to Christ as the righteous judge and holy warrior, we read, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Appropriate response, by the way. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. John falls on his face at the description of Christ as the righteous judge and holy warrior. And Jesus comes to him and picks him up and says, Fear not, for I have died and come back to life. Here we see Christ described. What John heard is Christ as the perfect substitute and master of death. Christ is the eternal sovereign and final conqueror. He is the righteous judge and holy warrior. And he is the perfect substitute and master of death. And the rest of the book of Revelation has to be read in light of these three descriptions of who Christ is. These themes come up again and again and again in the book of Revelation, and they're incredibly relevant for each of the seven churches. Because like each of the letters we've studied so far, the letter of Revelation begins with an incredible description of Christ. A worshipful, fearful, magnificent image of Christ. Because to understand and accept the message that follows, we must see Christ as who he really is. As the eternal sovereign, as the righteous judge, and as the perfect substitute. Only after this introduction in the the book of Revelation can we turn our attention back to the seven churches. Now again, I'm going to review here a bit. Don't worry, we're not going to read through and re-preach all of the seven churches. But I want us to take a moment, and I want us to slow down. Most of you have probably heard all seven of these messages. You've heard each of these churches explained and the message to them. But I want us to take a moment as a church 
And I want us to really dwell on each of the seven churches. And so we move from the letters addressed to the letters aim in chapters 2 and 3. We saw seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Let me review a bit of what we saw. First, it's been seven or so weeks ago, we saw the church at Ephesus. Christ's message to his church in Ephesus was love. This was a church that was good and known for a lot of good things. They were enduring faithfully. They were working hard. They were doctrinally discerning and dotting their I's and crossing their T's, but they had one fault that Christ couldn't get over. They had abandoned their first love. They had abandoned their first love. They had abandoned their devotion to Christ and their love for the lost and each other. And the question I want us to ask this morning, I want you to ask this morning is, am I Ephesus? Am I Ephesus? Do I resemble the church in Ephesus? Working hard, doctrinally discerning, But at some point, I left behind the passion I had for Christ. At some point, I took my eyes off of my Redeemer and was so set on the work before me that I lost the love that I had for Him. Am I Ephesus? How about Smyrna? The church at Smyrna was told, don't fear. The church at Smyrna was undergoing intense persecution. They were enduring tribulation. They were enduring poverty. They were enduring slander for the name of Christ. And Christ writes to them, don't fear. There's no criticisms given for the church at Smyrna. And yet there is a temptation to be fearful. So let me ask again, are you Smyrna this morning? Are you Smyrna? Do you find yourself consumed with the fear of what's coming from the outside? Are you fearful for our country? Are you fearful for our church? Are you fearful for your family? Are you fearful of what's coming in the future? Are you taking your eyes off of Christ and looking at all of the things to be afraid of in the world? And are you tempted to be afraid? Are you Smyrna? Are we Smyrna? Church number three, Pergamum. Christ's message to the church at Pergamum was don't compromise. Don't compromise. This was a church that was faithful to Christ, that was keeping the faith, but they had compromised doctrinally to the culture. Are we Pergamum? Are you Pergamum? this morning? Do you find yourself infatuated with the things that this world loves? Do you find yourself looking around and wishing that the church would look more like the culture? Middle schoolers, high schoolers, kids, it is so easy growing up in the church to think that what the world has outside is better than what we have inside. I grew up in the church. It is so easy to think I wish I had that. I wish I had that experience. I wish I could go to those things. I wish I could do those things. To long to look like the culture. But Christ's assurance is that stuff is false idols and false hope. 
all of those things in the culture that we long for, that we wish we could participate in, Christ says, that's not better for you. Don't compromise. Do you feel like Pergamum this morning? Do you feel like Pergamum? Looking to the things of this world to satisfy a hunger that only Christ can. Tempted to compromise doctrinally because you want what the world has. Taking your eyes off of Christ and putting your eyes on all of the things of this world. Are you Pergamum this morning? Church number four, Thyatira, one step worse from Pergamum. Christ's message to this church was be intolerant. Be intolerant. They were known for their love, their faith, their service, their patience, and all of these things were increasing, but they were tolerating sin and heresy in their church. They were tolerating immoral behavior and heretical teaching within the walls of their church. Do you resonate with Thyatira this morning? Are you tolerating a sin in your heart, in your life? Holding on to it because to release that might be too painful? Trying to prevent everyone else from seeing it because you feel ashamed of the thing that you've been hiding and tolerating in your life? Christ's words to the church in Thyatira was be intolerant. Stop tolerating that sin in your heart. Stop tolerating that sin in your church. But do you look around at all of the things of this life and do you find your heart drawn away from Christ? Do you find yourself going, I think I could shift what I believe about the Bible and about doctrine in order to accept something else that I want in this life? Are you like Thyatira this morning? How about Sardis? How about Sardis? The message to Sardis was, wake up! Some of you are already there. I need to hear that already, right? Wake up! This church has nothing good said about it. It is spiritually dead and has incomplete works. It is on life support and it is comatose. And Christ's words to them are, wake up. Do you resonate with the church at Sardis this morning? Maybe you once enjoyed a vibrant walk with Christ, but all of that heat, all of that enthusiasm at some point has grown cold. You find yourself asleep at the wheel and comatose in your Christian life. Have you taken your eyes off of your Savior and fallen asleep at the wheel. Are you Sardis this morning? How about Philadelphia, one of the most positive churches? To the, to the church at Philadelphia, Christ wrote, hold fast. Hold fast. Appreciate Chris's willingness to take on that one and teach us through it, how we need to hold fast to Christ. This church was enduring they were faithful, and they were keeping Christ's words, but the culture was pressing in on them. And they had a tendency to want to let go of Christ and give up. 
because their lives and their walks with Christ were so hard. To them, Christ says, hold fast to me. Do you feel like Philadelphia this morning? Spiritually, emotionally exhausted from clinging to Christ and fighting the uphill battle that is the Christian walk. Feeling like it's all you can do just to hold to Christ. And thankful every morning that Christ holds you. Do you feel like Philadelphia today? Lastly, and possibly the most frightening, the message to the church at Laodicea. Dimitri covered this last week. Christ's words to the church at Laodicea were, open up. Christ was shut on the outside of this church, and the church didn't even know. There is nothing good said to this church. They are criticized for being lukewarm, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Christ was stuck on the outside, and they didn't even know it. Are you Laodicea this morning? Are we Laodicea this morning? I was listening to something recently, and it said there's four types of people in every church. There are people that are believers and know it. They need to be encouraged. There are people that aren't believers and know it. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you're saying, I'm not a follower of Christ, but I came to check out what's going on. We're glad you're here. There are people that aren't or that are believers and don't know it. They are believers and they're afraid that they're not walking with Christ. They live in fear of that reality. But quite possibly the scariest group of people in every church are the ones who aren't believers and don't know it. That's the church at Laodicea. These were people that were not following Christ and did not even know it. Is there a possibility you're Laodicea this morning? Thinking you can achieve God's holy standard in your own work, that you don't need Christ, that you're okay on your own. Looking like the church, involved in the church, but Christ is on the outside and you don't know it. Is there a chance you might be Laodicea this morning? These are the seven churches of Revelation. These are the challenges and encouragements Christ spoke to his church and speaks to us today. Five of the seven churches are told to repent. We've said before, repentance means admission of guilt, expression of sorrow, and a change of behavior. I asked the elders a few weeks ago to assess who they thought we were as a church, to speak to what they thought the spiritual condition of Faith Bible Church was. The primary answer I got back was Ephesus. That the danger that Faith Bible Church faces is to have all their T's crossed, all their I's dotted, doctrinal discernment, hard work, endurance, but without love. The second church 
that was mentioned by a number of the elders was Laodicea. The lukewarm church. The church that looked good on the outside, but had lost their zeal for Christ. Didn't even know him. I would encourage you to consider for yourself, what church do I resonate with? What church do I sympathize with? What is the condition of my own heart today? Because each of these letters was written not only to the original audience, but to us as well. To encourage us and to warn us of the personal and corporate pitfalls while we wait for Christ to return. These are the dangers that every church throughout history has faced. So which church do you resemble? Which church do we resemble? Take a moment and I want to pause here. Because I don't want us to move forward without you having in your mind a church that you think is specifically applicable to you. Which church which encouragement from Christ? Everybody have one? Let's finally move on. And this is where it gets exciting. Because these are hard words from Christ. But in chapters 4 and 5, we see an incredible assurance as well. And at this point, we shift our focus from the churches back to heaven. And we receive a final assurance from Christ. Look at chapters 4 and 5. We see a throne in heaven. And I am going to read this. Pick up on what you're seeing in there. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. You pick up on the repeated use of throne, God's sovereignty. It's one of the most common words in Revelation. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in, front, and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Remember I said I wasn't going to answer all the questions of Revelation. For those of you wondering about the four living creatures, don't have time for that today. <laughs> 
I want to focus instead on these two responses, and then we're going to see a third one in chapter 5. Three songs, three responses that these heavenly creatures give to God. The first one, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. First reminder after addressing these issues in the church that Christ comes back to for his churches is God's holiness. God's absolute set-apartness. His fundamental difference and perfection that is different than us. Holy, holy, holy. Remember Christ as the, as the judge and holy warrior? Holy, holy, holy. The second song says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In addition to highlighting God's holiness, we come back to God's sovereign power. God is described here as the one that has created everything and receives glory and honor and power. It says, worthy are you, deserving of worship. And we highlight God's sovereign power again, just like at the beginning of the book. God's holiness, God's sovereign power. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Okay, hold those things in your mind. And we see the scene continue, chapter 5. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. One song highlights God's holiness, one song highlights God's sovereign power, and this last song highlights Christ's substitution and victory. Sound familiar? The same three things that were highlighted at the beginning of the book come back to in chapters 4 and 5. God's holiness, God's sovereign power, and Christ's perfect substitution and victory over death. Why? Why is it that we need to start the letter and after hearing these seven churches need to come back to this theme. I think the heart of the issue is that we have a vision problem. 
we have a vision problem, just like the seven churches had a vision problem. We see three songs addressing three issues, three things that we tend to forget as Christ's New Testament church as we wait for him to return. First, we miss God's sovereign power. As amazing it is to think that we live in a world created by God and held together moment by moment by Christ's sovereign will, we forget that God is sovereign. In our lives, <coughs> excuse me, in our churches, in our day in and day out living. And we need to be reminded of God's sovereign power. The second thing we miss is we miss God's perfect holiness. Even as a New Testament church, we tend to forget that God is perfectly holy. And as a result, we forget just how offensive our sin is to God's perfect holiness. And so we're able to downplay our sin and minimize our sin because we have downplayed God's holiness. And thirdly, we miss the gospel. We miss what Christ has done for us. Because either we lower God or we elevate ourselves, we miss the chasm that Christ has filled with his blood. And so John, Christ, the, the God through Christ, through John writing here, reminds us that Christ is the only one worthy to take the stroll. For he was slain and by his blood he ransomed a people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He takes them back to Christ's work, to Christ's perfect substitute and his victory over death. And this was the issue. One of these three issues was at play for every single one of the churches, was it not? Smyrna and Philadelphia were tempted to have a sovereignty issue. Smyrna looking at the persecution around them, Philadelphia feeling the pressure of the world, both were tempted to take their eyes off of their Redeemer and look at their circumstances. To make their circumstances big and their God small. And their temptation was to forget God's absolute powerful sovereignty. The church at Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, they had a holiness issue. They had forgotten Christ's perfect, absolute holiness. And so they had minimized their sin, and they had said doctrine doesn't really matter. We don't have to worry about our sin, because God's not really that holy. They had a holiness issue. Ephesus, Laodicea, they had a gospel issue. They had forgotten the significance of the gospel. Ephesus, in their endeavors to work and to strive and to have doctrinal discernment, had totally forgotten the love that should be inspired by what they had been forgiven by. Their passion for Christ had dwindled because they had forgotten the joy of their salvation. Laodicea probably never knew it. They had so minimized God's holiness and so maximized their own effort that they didn't even think they needed the gospel. 
Ephesus and Laodicea both had a gospel issue. So the question for us here this morning is what church do you resemble? What church do we resemble? Think back to the church you had in your mind when we went through chapters 2 and 3. Now what does that tell you about where your focus is? What does the church you resemble tell you about where your focus and attention is? What is occupying your attention rather than Christ? What are you beholding rather than Christ? Some of you may be familiar with the Westminster Confession. It asks the question, what is the chief aim of man? I love the response. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were created for this purpose, and the minute we take our focus off of Christ and put it on our circumstances or our world or our fears or any number of other things, we begin to stray from what we were created for. Our devotion will direct our decisions. Our devotion will direct our decisions. What are we devoted to? What are we beholding? I love this quote from John Piper. Bear with me. He says it this way. If you enjoy Jesus more than life, you will live with a radical abandon for Jesus that will make the world wonder. Enjoyment of Jesus is not like icing on the cake, it's like the powder in the shell. Not only is enjoying Jesus explosively transforming in the way we live, it is also essential for making Jesus look great. It cannot be done by those who find this world more enjoyable than Jesus. They make the world look great. Therefore, the ultimate aim of the Christian life and the universe hangs on the people of God enjoying the Son of God. Every church in Revelation was tempted to take their eyes off Christ. We're tempted to take our eyes off Christ as well. If we become what we behold, what do you want to become? What are you fixing your eyes on today. You were created to worship. You will worship something. Are you focused on Christ? You'll note I didn't finish chapter 5 because verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5 feel like the only appropriate way to end a message like this and a series like this with a response of worship. Verse 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. 
and the elders fell down and worshipped. So rather than ending this morning's message with prayer as I normally do, I asked Troy if he and his team would end us in worship. And I would encourage you as we sing to imagine in your own mind what has fixated my attention, what has captured my vision, and reorient that to Christ and His worthiness. Let's stand. Let's declare the worthiness of our Lord together this morning. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. It is good that we remind ourselves of this. It is. Is anyone worthy? Kingdom.
come and praise the 